The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. I was at a preaching conference uh, a couple weeks ago in Portland, the Charles Simeon Trust. I was there with a, probably like 80 guys from around the Northwest, but really kind of other parts in the country as well. All these men looking to, to sharpen their skills as expositors, men who faithfully handle and, handle and teach and preach the Word of God. It was humbling. I've been a part of these workshops for years, and it was my first one on the West Coast. It was so cool to see all these men. We, we, we were able to stand on each day uh, of this event and we were able to sing praises to God and the, the sounds of 80 to 90 thundering baritones lifting up praise to God. Men who've, who, have, who have laid their lives down and have written their, their names on a blank contract and given it to the Lord to be used however he desires to use them. To hear those men gathered in one place at one time singing songs of praise to the Lord. It reminded me of soldiers before they go in battle. It was, it was harrowing, it was beautiful, it was inspiring. I love the conference. Part of the conference each year is these workshops where these men who have done word work, we were in the book of Ecclesiastes, we gather around a table and we, we work uh, together through the book and we share our work with one another and my small group is made up of about eight guys and I think six of us in the group ha- were in vocational ministry. And as we're getting to know one another, we're, we're introducing ourselves as we go around the, the room and, and we get to this one guy who kind of stood out uh, different than the rest of the guys. Most of the men in that group were in vocational ministry, had been preaching for years, had been in the church for years. Then this one guy named Chris, he, uh, when he introduced himself, he said, I've only been a Christian since 2020. He was about my age. So young and handsome, basically. Uh, he was about my age. He was a teacher in the eastern part of our state. Yeah, and he said, yeah, I, I became a Christian in 2020. He said, I, I came to faith in Christ after reading the Bible on my, on my sofa. And he said, and uh, now I just want to know how to declare the gospel to others. And I want to know how to faithfully handle God's word. And it was so cool to hear this guy's story. And so I wanted to know more. And so I, I, I sought him out after, the, uh, after our workshop. And I said, I just want to know your story, man. Tell, tell me. And he was telling me this is this amazing story about being caught up in some dark things and some difficult things in his life. He has a bunch of kids at home and, uh, and just found himself sitting on his couch reading his Bible and having this radical conversion, like supernatural, radical conversion. And it was just awesome to hear and see the love in his eyes for Jesus and the life in his heart to serve the Lord. And then he was a public school teacher. And I said, well, what was it like for your kids? The kids you teach, they had to see the difference. They had to know the old Chris and then the new Chris. And he's like, well... Let's just put it this way. I've, almost, uh, I've gotten talked to by the administration on five separate occasions. <laughs> you know, he had a story to tell. He, 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 wanted to, he wanted to tell people the testimony of what God had done in his life. And I think about a man in a position of authority over students and how, how beautiful it must have been for them to know the old man, these students, and then to see the new man and to hear testimony about how God met the new man and, and how he was born again through the work of God through his son Jesus. What a beautiful story. As I look at our text today, we are looking at the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to be in chapter 4 for three weeks, and I think about the power of testimony. You know, people have, have often said that you can argue doctrine, you can argue theology, you can argue Bible, you can argue the existence of God with people, but you cannot argue with someone about how God has impacted their lives, about their experience, their encounter, their walk with God. That's why your testimony is so powerful. It's your story of how God encountered you and how he saved you and turned your life upside down for the good. As we look at this 
these 18 verses, and really we're going to look at the whole entirety of chapter 4 over the next three weeks, we're going to see this testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now the backdrop here of, of his proclamation of faith, we can't, we can't forget the, the backdrop of, 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 his, of his conversion story, if you will. I'm going to make the argument that, that Nebuchadnezzar is converted. I'm going to make the argument that I'm going to see him in heaven one day. But the backdrop to this is the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. That's what we've been talking about since we opened up this book seven weeks ago. Especially Daniel. I think of Daniel's life. Daniel was a prophet of God. He, he was exiled into Babylon as a teenager, probably 16 or 17 years old. He, he, he ended up living his 70 plus years in Babylon as an exile, as a foreigner. And here by the time we get to chapter 4 of, of the book of Daniel, most scholars agree that he was about my age mid to late 40s, early 50s, Daniel had been probably serving in Nebuchadnezzar's courts for 30 plus years at this point. And not only after 30 plus years of, of being a faithful witness before Nebuchadnezzar, he's not only testified to the Most High God, he has modeled faithfulness in many, many ways over many, many years in the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now think about this just for a second from practical terms. Daniel was a man who worked a secular job over the course of many, many years, decades, in fact, he served his powerful boss. He just so happened to be the most powerful man in the most powerful kingdom on the earth at that time. He, he was speaking to his powerful boss when opportunity arose. He would speak to his boss when opportunity arose to speak to him about the Most High God, in fact. And I believe that chapter 4 tells us of the results of those many years of faithful witnessing on the part of Daniel as the king receives the message that Daniel had been preaching. And as we see as this chapter will unfold, we'll listen to the words of King Nebuchadnezzar as he praises the God of Daniel as his own, all to the glory of the Most High God. I read this week that chapter 4 is the king's testimony of the Most High's operation in his life. Let's begin by reading the first 18 verses together. It's also on the screen behind me too. Chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of my dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in and told, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Verse 8, at last Daniel came in before me. He who is named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached into heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and, it was, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's to, and let a beast's minds be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that is to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And then in verse 18 he says, This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me, the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So I know that's a long bit of narrative. That's 18 verses of the king's story, and, and we'll finish the story in the coming weeks. But the king here, in the very few first three verses of the chapter, he, he lets us know what he's up to here. He, he wants us to know up front. He wants everyone to know about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for him. And he, and he has this little bit of poetry in verse 3. How great are, the, are his signs, how, how powerful his wonders, his kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. I'm mindful of the, the, the men and women that God had sent into exile in Babylon to, to give a word to the world. The, the, the faithful of Jerusalem, the faithful of Judah were sent into Babylon to, to, as, as exiles, as foreigners, that they, that they would speak the word of God to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were the one to whom God sent the faithful, that they would come to know the Most High God. And here in, 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 in chapter 4, we begin to see the fruit of that. The, the, the reason why God sent these, these exiles into this foreign land, we're seeing the fruit of it as the most powerful man in the land is, is, is talking about the God of Israel as if it is his own God. As I look at this, these 18 verses, I, I just see that the Most High God is praised and honored through humbling means and faithful witness. And so there's two things I want you to see in the text. I encourage you to take notes today. First thing I would encourage you to write down is simply this. As we look at these first three verses in particular, we see a proclamation of the Most High God. We see a proclamation of the Most High God. Now, as we know, as we've studied this, this book uh, through the first three chapters, Nebuchadnezzar is prone to making proclamations or decrees. We see it in verse 13 of chapter 2 where he makes this decree. It goes out that all the wise men in the kingdom be killed because they couldn't offer interpretation of a previous troubling dream that he had. He, he gives a decree at the beginning of chapter 3 where he decrees that everybody in his kingdom bow down at the sound of music and worship an idol that he'd set up in the plain of Dura, this golden idol that stretched nine stories into the sky. And at the end of chapter 3, if you were with us last week, he makes another decree, a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, that that person shall be torn limb from limb and their houses should be laid to ruins. And then he says, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So Nebuchadnezzar is prone to making decrees. He's prone to making proclamations. But in the final decree of Nebuchadnezzar's life, is recorded for us in chapter 4 of Daniel. 
King Nebuchadnezzar says to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth, he, he wanted peace to be multiplied to his audience. And he said, it seems good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, this is a different kind of proclamation than the ones we've seen before. Number one, this proclamation of King Nebuchadnezzar is not designed to elevate Nebuchadnezzar. It's not designed to elevate Babylon. Some of his previous decrees felt reactionary and born out of a strong emotional response to something. This does not feel reactionary. This feels measured and thoughtful and intentional. King Nebuchadnezzar has something that he wants to tell the world. He is declaring a kingdom here in chapter 4. And he's not declaring his kingdom. He's not declaring Babylon. He's declaring a king here, but he's not declaring his own kingship. He's declaring another king. A kingdom that has an everlasting kingdom and a dominion that endures from generation to generation. This really, what Nebuchadnezzar says in these first three verses, I, make the, I believe this is the central argument of the entire book of Daniel. This is the entire message of Daniel here in just these first three verses. It comes up again in chapter 6 under a different king. If you go to chapter 6 and you read verses 25, 26, and 27, this is King Darius. After the lion's den situation, we'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell on the earth. And here's what Darius says some years later. Peace be multiplied to you. I, King Darius, make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall, and of his dominion there shall be no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so we see this sort of melodic line. Like if there was a song, we learned this when you're, we learned this a couple weeks ago at our preaching conference. And I've, I've, I've had this phrase in my mind for years. But it, it, there are certain songs that when you hear like the chorus of the song that, 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 that manifests multiple times throughout a song, there's like a, a, a rememberable, uh, a catchy, melodic line of any song. And it's, it's kind of the thread that holds the whole song together. Well, books of the Bible are the same. They're like a song, and there's a melodic line in each book of the Bible, and there's threads that run the whole length of the book that hold it together. And this is a melodic line issue. This is one of the central themes of Daniel, that there is a kingdom, and there is a king that will endure forever, whose, whose dominion will endure forever. That's why we're calling the series Kingdom Come. And we're seeing a proclamation of the Most High God here. So there's two things I think we need to make note of, of this proclamation of King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and you can take notes for these as well. Two little sub-points under the first point. Number one, that this is a public proclamation. We've got to make note of that. Again, the book of Daniel as a whole, it, it features a public declaration of the kingdom of God. This is the message of God intended for all the world. And we've got to notice who this message is intended to. To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. I mean, as we listen to the voice of Nebuchadnezzar, in the opening lines of this personal testimony of his, I, I can just hear the voice of Jesus. Jesus said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And so the voice of Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8, he says to his disciples, The Spirit will come upon you and you'll receive great power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the, the proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar is this is a message for the whole world. 
And then when Jesus comes, King Jesus comes, he says, take this message to the whole world that there is an eternal kingdom and an eternal king. There are no limits put on the people reached by this proclamation. The scope of the king's proclamation extends to the entire world, to the ends of the earth. The announcement of the kingdom of the Most High God. It is a public proclamation. God has a word for the world. He wants the world to know about this eternal and enduring dominion that will take place for all of eternity. And so with his introduction here, we are getting, really, before he gets into the nuts and bolts of how he got there, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of giving us the conclusion. He's saying, hey, I have met and I have encountered the Most High God. And by, by inference, like his life's been forever changed. He, he said this has been so profound, in fact, that I think the whole world needs to know what my encounter with the Most High God has looked like. And so we know the conclusion before we even get into the body of the story. We know that something happened, something profound happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life that has led him to receive and trust the Most High God. And in the first three verses, we don't know exactly what sparks this proclamation, but we know it's profound. And so then, beginning in verse 4, he begins to give us the meat and potatoes of what happened in his life. Second thing I'd encourage you to write down, not only is this a public proclamation, number, the second thing under point number one is that it's a personal profession. It's a personal profession. It's not just this public proclamation for, for all nations and people. This is a deeply personal thing for, for, for Nebuchadnezzar. Look at what he says in, in verse 2. He says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And so this is, this is a proclamation that flows out of a deeply personal encounter with God. As much as this is a public proclamation, it's also very much a personal profession of faith. It's a personal testimony. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking of signs and wonders of the Most High God. He speaks of his great signs and his mighty wonders and his everlasting kingdom and his enduring and eternal dominion. And these were made known to King Nebuchadnezzar in an intimate and deeply personal way. And I think that's really interesting because the king doesn't just want us to know about the doctrine of the kingdom, though that's important. He wants us to give honor and praise to the God who has personally shown him kindness. You know, I was officiating a funeral yesterday, a really tragic funeral of, of someone who died way too early and way too tragically. And I was trying to speak comfort to the family that was gathered there and the friends that were gathered there in the, in the cemetery. And, and I, I thought about this. I thought about the message of Daniel, the message of the king here. Here in the first three verses, he, he gives us both these profound truths about the power of God, about the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, let's just say the sovereignty of God. But we also see the very personal way in which this powerful God intersects the lives of those he loves. We see both and. And as I sat with his family yesterday and these friends gathered in this old cemetery, I thought about the profound sovereignty of God and, and the, the personal salvation of God. And we spoke about both. We spoke uh, as we gathered around the grave on that day that our God is a sovereign God. And because he is a sovereign God and because he is good and because he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, we can have rest in the fact that our God is sovereign. 
and that, that he neither slumbers nor sleeps, no matter how brutal the day is, how difficult the, 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 the curveball may seem, how, how hard the loss may hit with us, how, how, how pained our lives may be, he is sovereign. He's not sleeping. He's good. He's for me. And then there's this personal piece. We quoted Psalm 58 yesterday where the Bible tells us that he keeps track of all of our sorrows. He captures each one of our tears in his bottle. He records each one in his book. So I think about those two natures of, of, of God that Nebuchadnezzar pulls out here in his first three verses. He is a sovereign God who is the eternal king who endures forever. His dominion endures for all of eternity. And we as Christians look so forward to the day that King Jesus returns and he, he sets up the new heavens and the new earth and we get to live forever and ever and ever under the rule and reign of King Jesus without the, the, the brutality of sin and brokenness, when he makes all things new, he wipes away every tear. We can't wait for that day. But we don't just hold our breath and wait for that day because he's also a personal God who's deeply concerned with your life personally. He captures each one of your tears in his bottle. He's concerned with your sorrows. He records each one in his book. I mean, what a message of hope. What a message of hope for, for those of us living in this world today. It is a, both a, a, a public proclamation, but a personal profession that we see here coming from the king. The Most High God is praised and honored, oftentimes through humbling means and through the lips of faithful witnesses. So once we're past the introduction, the king begins his personal testimony. He, he begins to tell us what the path was that he took. What was the journey that led the most powerful man on planet earth to fall on his knees before someone who is greater than him? What led King Nebuchadnezzar to discovering the most high God? Who he says at the end of chapter 4, whom I praise and extol and honor as the king of heaven. How does that happen? Can you imagine that with our president? Can you imagine that with any world leader? The radical conversion where the leader says, I need the whole world to know that there is a king that is greater than me and who models that humility. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, this is, world, this is world-shaking reality here that's taking place in the pages of, of Daniel, and it happened. So here's the second thing I want to encourage you to write down. We see the first part in our text today of a pathway to the Most High God. So we saw a proclamation of the Most High God, and now as he begins to tell us the, the path that he took to discovering this God, we see the pathway to the Most High God. As the chapter unfolds, we'll, we'll also see again how, how God not only used the, the, the faithful witness of, of Daniel, but he also is going to use, uh, God is, God is going to, Put his hand on Nebuchadnezzar, and we'll, we'll see this next week. He's going to bring some, he's going to humble the man. He's going he's to use pain and humiliation to accomplish his end in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he, and he does that to condition Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he would lift him, himself up, lift his eyes up from his place of humiliation and see who the king really is, but we'll get into that next week. Our text today, we simply see the first part of this pathway. And again, for the second time in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream. The last troubling dream was in chapter 2. He dreamed of the statue made of four metals. The stone not cut from human hands came flying in, obliterates the statue. The statues represent the kingdoms of the world, but the stone represents the eternal kingdom that fills the whole earth. It's awesome. Go back and read chapter 2. If you weren't a part of that teaching, go back and listen to those teachings. But, but we read in chapter 2 that his spirit was troubled, and that's when he first encounters Daniel and Daniel's ability to interpret these dreams. But here in our passage, we see him again 
being deeply troubled by a dream. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Look at the words afraid and alarmed. King Nebuchadnezzar was afraid and alarmed. Very reminiscent of his spirit being troubled in chapter 2. This alarming and fearful experience, it was preceded, look at verse 4, by a season of ease and prosperity. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, he says. In other words, in Nebuchadnezzar's private life and in his professional life, he was in, he was in a good spot. Everything in, his, everything in his life, professional, private, his house, all of it was in good order. He was in a season of flourishing, a season of ease. He was on cruise control, didn't have a care in the world. And then all of a sudden, that all got upended by another troubling dream, a fearful and alarming dream. Now we've got to remember, in the Babylonian mind, dreams were communications from the divine. They were visions from God. And Nebuchadnezzar, as he received this troubling vision, he would have been convinced that this was a warning from God about something bad that was coming. And so he, appropriately so, was alarmed and afraid. Being able to understand what this dream meant was paramount to, to Nebuchadnezzar. And so he makes another decree that all the wise men of Babylon be brought to him, and they were useless as always. And so then by the time we get to verse 8, we see Daniel in front of the king. Don't know why he didn't just go to Daniel at first, but for whatever reason, by verse 8, Daniel is standing in his presence. And in Daniel, we read in, in verse 7, or verse 8 rather, in Daniel he said, is the spirit of the holy gods. He tells us, I, I told Daniel the dream. I said, O Belteshazzar, which is Daniel's Babylonian name, O, o, o Belteshazzar, our chief of the magicians, be, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So he's, again, at the mercy of this Hebrew exile. You need to help me understand what's going on. Like, why did God give me this vision? Why have I been given this, this bizarre dream about trees and a stump? You know, if you think about the book of Daniel, there's only three times that we know of for sure that Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar were face-to-face. -face. We see it in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4. In chapter 1, right after the exile of the Israelites to Babylon, the whole vegetable thing where Daniel and his friends say, we're just going to eat vegetables, we're not going to eat the king's food. They end up standing before Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the chapter, and he finds it that in all matters, they are ten times better than the rest. And so they have favor in Nebi's eyes at the end of chapter 1. So at least at that point, when a young teenage Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar, there was an interaction of some kind. Of course, we know chapter 2, the scary dream. Daniel comes in. He saves all the wise men who the king was going to kill because he properly interprets the dream. And at the very end of chapter 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar praising the God of Daniel. And then here in chapter 4, but really only twice in the whole book of Daniel did we see Daniel and the king actually interacting. Which means only twice in the book of Daniel do we see Daniel proclaiming the Most High God to his boss. Do you remember how he said it in chapter 2 as he was unpacking that dream? If you want to turn back to chapter 2, verses 44 and 45... It, this is sort of the end of the dream as Daniel's giving the interpretation to the king of, of what the dream meant. And he ends up talking about God. Yahweh, the Most High God. Daniel says, beginning in chapter 2, verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, 
That shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, bronze, and clay, and silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And then we have our interaction that we'll see in the coming weeks in chapter 4. I, I point that out because I think that there's something important for us to make note of here. How long was this relationship between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? How long did they know each other? Well, Nebuchadnezzar ruled Babylon for 43 years. And according to chapter 2, Daniel was promoted to chief over all the wise men of Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's second year. So for 42 years, they had a working relationship. Which means that in the life and ministry of Daniel, there were only two days of especially powerful witness where God showed up in Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, where God gave Daniel supernatural understanding to bravely speak truth to power as he interpreted the dreams. So two days, two powerful, sensational days where God showed up and did amazing things. Compare those two extraordinary days to the 15,338 days of regular, faithful, daily witness. Lived out in a million little acts of godliness and faithfulness before the king. Think about that. We love the sensational. Daniel records them for us in the book of Daniel, but what about the 15,338 days where Daniel showed up to work and he loved his boss he walked in integrity. He did his work with excellence. He spoke truth when he was given the opportunity. He worked as a man of character 15,338 days. Even if you look at the entire life and ministry of Daniel after Nebuchadnezzar leaves and eventually the Persians come in, Daniel had over 70 years of faithful service in Babylon. In the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel, we have recorded for us just nine events. Nine times in where Daniel kind of was working on behalf of God in profound ways. Which means that Daniel's life and ministry was marked far more by regular daily faithfulness to God in the mundane than it was by sensational supernatural ministry in the miraculous. I like how one writer puts it. He says, The truth of the matter is that the bulk of Daniel's life and ours is orchestrated by God to be lived out in regulated and strikingly ordinary ways. If we're looking to be useful to God and his ever-expanding kingdom, we ought to be prepared to show up day after day, decade after decade, simply playing our regular part in the melodic line he is orchestrating. I love that. What a great reminder. I, I said a couple weeks ago that what if our witness to an unbelieving world has a lot more to do with the way in which we walk with God than the words we speak. Notice a few things about this pathway to the Most High God that we see Nebuchadnezzar walking. Number one, it began with a private problem. It began with a private problem. Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar, in his privacy of his own palace, he had this dream. And he tells us as such in verse, in verse uh, 4 and 5. Notice the personal pronouns. Eight personal pronouns here in verses 4 and 5. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in bed and the fancies of the visions of my head alarmed me. This is a, this is a very 
This is a very private problem that, that Nebuchadnezzar is having. And God, God used this troubling dream to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And God has a way of sometimes using troubling things in our lives of getting our attention as well, doesn't he? It was a bizarre dream. There's no doubt. It left Nebuchadnezzar afraid and alarmed. We'll spend more time in next week kind of getting into the particulars of the dream, but let me just give you a quick summary here. There was this large tree in the middle of the earth, and it grew very large and tall and strong, and it stretched up into the heavens, and the whole world could see this tree. It was healthy. It was producing abundantly. Animals were living in the shade of the tree. Birds were, were nesting in its branches. The whole world was being fed by the, by the abundance that came from this tree. But then a, a watcher, a messenger, a holy one from God comes down from heaven. Now this word watcher, it means one who is awake. It occurs only three times in the Bible and all three are in this chapter. The idea is that the, the heavenly being is awake and keeping watch over the activities of the human race. A good translation would be to call them holy watchers. And so this watcher, this messenger, this holy one from God comes down from heaven. He shouts, cut down the tree. He says, cut the tree down, cut off its branches, shake off its leaves, scatter its fruit, chase away all the animals that are finding you know, food and refuge in, in the tree. But leave a stump amidst the grass. Leave the roots of the stump. The stump is bound with a band of iron and bronze. The stump and the grass are then drenched by dew from heaven. And then if you notice, I might get into this next week, I might not. It's interesting to me that in the middle of verse 15, it goes from talking about the stump as like this inanimate object to then using a personal pronoun. It's no longer the stump. In the middle of verse 15, we begin to hear the language of he. He is to be drenched by dew from heaven. He is to live like a wild animal among the plants of the fields. He will remain like this, wild and with the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. He, and we'll find out later, this is Nebuchadnezzar, believing he's an animal. And this watcher, this messenger, this holy one from God makes it clear that, that why did God do this? Why did this happen to Nebuchadnezzar? Why would he lose his mind? Why would all this happen? Well, we read in the ESV to the end. The, the, the messenger makes this clear that all of this will happen to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Another translation puts it this way. The purpose of the decree is that the whole world may understand that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. What a bizarre and troubling dream. I mean, filled with evil and ominous omens. And as readers of this testimony, and we can peek ahead and kind of know what's coming, but if you're just reading this, this, this testimony for the first time, you're like, we have no idea what all this means. It's just weird. It's like, this is just bizarre. And we're just as confused and alarmed and afraid as Nebuchadnezzar was. But not knowing for Nebuchadnezzar was not an option. And so we see that this private problem became too big for him to handle alone. And this gives us the final point of today's teaching. He made a public plea. Nebuchadnezzar says, I, I got to know this. I got to know what's going on. We, we see all the way back in verse, in verse 6, you know, I made a decree, he says, that all the wise men of Babylon be brought to me. And then finally, when Daniel comes to him, he tells them the whole dream, this whole crazy weird dream with watchers and trees and stumps and everything else. And then by the time we get to verse 18, he kind of summarizes everything as he's speaking directly to Daniel. He says, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, or Daniel, and you, Tell me the interpretation. 
because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you, Daniel, you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So we see a public plea. He needs help. He's been brought to his knees, and he's powerless to get off his knees. He needs help. And so he starts to survey the landscape of who are the people in my life who can help me. I'm the most powerful man in the world. I got anything a man could ever want. I got a palace. I got prosperity. I got everything I need. But I'm on my knees and I'm, I'm stripped of self-sufficiency. I'm going to start looking around my world to see who are the people in my life who can help me in this moment and who's the one person he, he basically runs to. It's Daniel. Why? Why does he go to Daniel again? I go back to the years of Daniel's everyday faithfulness. We have that one instance in chapter 2, 30 years previously, where he spoke the, the interpretation of the dream about the four-medaled statue. And we got the 15,338 days of faithful witnessing and just faithful living in the presence of the king, all of which revealed to the king on this moment that Daniel was his man. In those 42 years or 35 years, whoever it was at this point, in those many, many years, decades of service, there was nothing that the king saw in Daniel that disqualified him from being invited into this very intimate place where the king exposes the contents of his heart to this man. We cannot, we cannot dismiss the power of daily mundane faithful witness. We can't. And so, as we look at this text, we see a proclamation of the Most High God, and we see a pathway to the Most High God. We see a public and personal aspect of that proclamation. We see a, a, a personal and a public plea from the king, and we see that, that the Most High God, this, that, that phrase, the word Most High appears six times in our chapter, or Most High God, and he is to be praised and honored. We are, we, that, that, that is, he, he, is to be, he is to be worshiped by his creation. And we see here in our chapter that the Most High God is praised and he's honored. And often so he, he is through humbling means and through faithful witness. So what do you and I do with it? So what's the so what aspect? So, 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 so what do we take away from this today? We'll, we'll finish the, the story in the coming weeks. And then two weeks from now, uh, on Mission Sunday, we're going to look at the final, like the benediction of King Nebuchadnezzar's profession. And it's by design that we're going to have week three of, of chapter four be on the same Sunday that we're talking about missions because I see the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar as the culmination of the missional lifestyle of, of Daniel and his friends. That's why we're talking about mission on that Sunday. But as we look at this today, this morning, as we look at these first 18 verses, what are we to do with this? How, how is this supposed to impact or influence what happens in our lives when we leave the doors of our church today? Well, I see three groups of people that I think we could kind of just maybe identify with a bit today. I see the, the, the willfully lost, I see the seeker, and I see the, the witnessing saint. I see the willfully lost. These are the wise men of Babylon. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they are clinging to the wisdom of this world. They're the embodiment of worldly wisdom of the day. And they, they're utterly impotent to address the real need of the king. When real problems arise, they got nothing. Just fluff. They're windbags. They got no answers for the real problems that face Nebuchadnezzar, no answers for the real issues that face the world. They're willfully lost. And if we kind of just reduce ourselves to the testimonial aspect of, of King Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately we know he's sharing his testimony, and he, he has come to at least believe to a certain degree in this Most High God of, of Daniel. 
But if we, if we just kind of reduce ourselves to the story as it began in, in chapter 4, verse 4, we see that he is this afraid and alarmed king. He is the seeker. He's, 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 he's been brought to his knees by life's circumstances, and he knows there's something greater than himself that he needs. And so he is a seeker. He's a, an afraid and alarmed man. He's looking for personal He's looking for answers to a personal problem. And so we see the willfully lost, we see the seeker, and we see the witnessing saint. We see the faithful and godly witness. We see Daniel. And I think he's just modeled humility throughout this entire book. He's just a man. He's a flawed man, but he's just a man. But he knows and trusts the Most High God. And he looks to God for direction and for wisdom and for 15,338 days he has lived a faithful witness in the presence of this king. He has been a witnessing saint. And so as I look at the world today, I suppose you could say that everybody on planet Earth falls in one of those three camps, don't they? We have the willfully lost in our world who have just hardened their hearts and turned their back on any thought of Jesus. We have the, the seeker that looks any number of ways. We have the religious seeker, the irreligious seeker, but those who don't yet know Jesus as Lord, but they're on a pursuit, they're searching after truth. And then you have the redeemed of God. Those of us that are called to be faithful witnesses. Those are the three camps we get to be in today. My prayer is for those of you that claim Christ as Lord, that you recognize that God has called you to be a witnessing saint. He has put you in a world where there are many willfully lost and many seekers, and you are the one, like Daniel, you live those faithful days, day in, day out, and when opportunity arises to speak truth, to proclaim gospel, that we step into those places. But in all the mundane and ordinary day-to-day -day life, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, we walk as faithful men and women, as parables of Jesus, as the aroma of Christ that the world around us, when they are on their knees and surveying the landscape of their life to whom they may look to answers, that they can look to you and say, that's a person who has loved me, who has walked in integrity, who has walked as a parable of Jesus, and that's the person I want to talk to today. I think it's a beautiful picture. And above all, above the willfully lost, above the seeker, above the, the witnessing saint, we see the reigning king. We see the Most High God, don't we? How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. We just got done preaching through Hebrews last year. And in Hebrews, we, we heard this language again and again about how Christ has ascended. And he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says that in the, in the invocation of the, of the book. And then at the end of the book, chapter 12, sort of some, the, the summation verse of the, of the whole book of, of Hebrews, the author, kind of reflecting back on those faithful saints who came before, like Daniel, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, like Daniel, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As Daniel, as Daniel records the words of Nebuchadnezzar, and as Nebuchadnezzar declares in his introduction that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation, he is talking about the throne of God, the throne to which Christ has ascended. Christ has ascended to his throne. His are the great signs and mighty wonders that we read about in the Gospels. 
His is the everlasting kingdom. His is the dominion that endures from generation to generation. We are invited into his kingdom. We are commissioned to expand his kingdom, to proclaim his kingdom to the wise of the world, to the, to the seeking of this world. I think of God's faithful men and women today. We are called to daily walk with him in such a way that, that God is seen in and through us. We are called to speak truth when opportunity arises, we are to sing of God's faithfulness in the things we say and the way we live and in how we love. We are to sing to the world around us. Our lives are to, are to sing a song, the melodic line of which declares how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. King Jesus lives. He's on his throne. May this be the song that we as followers of Christ sing to the world. I'm going to leave you with this. David Hillman, his commentary on the book of Daniel, says this at the end of this chapter. He says this. You and I, as followers of Jesus, as those of us that are, that are witnessing saints, we should sing this song to our souls, to each other, and to the whole world around us. There is a God whose truth is for all people, whose work is personal, and whose kingdom is all-powerful, eternal, and peaceful for those who accept its authority. And then he leaves us with these two questions today. Have you made this song your own? How will you sing it today, even if the world sings songs of praise to its idols? Would you pray with me? Father, thankful for this text and thankful for the opportunity to, to teach this passage this morning. And God, I, I, God, I'm mindful of the men and women who are, who are here this morning. And God, maybe just maybe there's men and women here this morning that might find themselves in each of those three categories we just spoke about a minute ago. God, maybe there's some folks here today that are willfully lost. God, I pray that today you would, God, I pray that today that you would help those who are willfully lost in our midst to see the foolishness of their ways. God, that you would break the stronghold of lies, the stronghold of the world, and you would begin to open the eyes of the blind and soften the hard hearts of those who have turned their back on you and you would again call them to yourself. God, I'm, I'm mindful today of the seeker in our midst. Maybe there's some here today that are afraid and alarmed. God, I pray that you would use, God, you would use whatever means necessary in their lives, God, that they would, that they would turn to you, the one who's overcome this world. God, that you would welcome them with your open arms. God, that they would see and behold you for who you are. And I pray, God, for those of us that are in Christ, those of us that have trusted you. God, you've made you the Lord of our lives, that we are the, the witnessing saints. God, that's a terrifying thought for many of us, the thought of proclaiming Jesus to people who don't know you, the thought of being bold for our faith, the thought of even being a witness at our work. God, I pray that, that we would muster that up independent of you. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you would move in each one of our lives and you would equip us and prepare us and embolden us. God, I pray that you put a fire within us that we just can't keep inside anymore, that we would speak the truth of who you are, God, that our lives would sing this song, that, that how great are your signs, how mighty are your wonders. Yours is the kingdom that's an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to generation. God, I pray that you would continue to work in and through our church. God, that we collectively as a church would sing this song to the world around us. God, that we collectively as a church would, would proclaim your kingdom and they'd use our, you would use our faithful offering to bring glory to yourself and to bring many into your family. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.